But tonight we're going to do Galatians chapter 6. We're going to finish Galatians. And there's basically two main points um, at the end. Sometimes at the end of a letter there's, you know, kind of some different topics that we've got to cover. And there's two here that I want to talk about tonight. But first let's read the passage. We'll start at Galatians chapter 6, picking up at verse 6. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Let me say that again. Uh, That's all we're going to talk about tonight. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Evidently, he's been dictating this to a scribe, but now at verse 11, he takes the pen himself and writes with his own hand. In big letters, that's the point. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. These are the false teachers that we've been talking about. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this word, and we pray that you would help us to understand and apply uh, what it is that you have for us in this teaching tonight. Help us to be so convicted and convinced about the importance of the cross that we would want to write it with extra large letters as well. And may our lives... Um, speak the, about the cross in such a way that people can't help but notice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first, uh, first topic I want to talk about is this whole idea of sowing and reaping. And then I want to talk about what does it mean to boast in the cross, right? Now, you, if you've been tracking with us in the book of Galatians, you know that the key theme is, what does it mean to live a life that pleases God? And how do you please God with your life? Paul had originally been the one to teach these people in Galatia about Jesus. He hadn't intended to go there, but he had ended up there and had to stay there for a while because he was sick. And he shared the good news that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners, shared it with these people. They put their hope and their trust in that, which means that they no longer counted on what they could do and how they could get God to be pleased with them. Instead, they decided to throw all their eggs in one basket and say, I will trust in what Jesus did, that what he did was enough, that what I need to be beautiful in God's sight, what Jesus did covers that. 
and everything that would make God want to run away from me screaming, Jesus took the punishment for that. And therefore, there is now no more reason for God to be displeased with me. That's what it means to put your hope in the gospel, the good news. And these Galatians had done that. But then some false teachers came after Paul had left. And they said, you know, that Paul, he kind of didn't really get things exactly right. Uh, It's true that you need to put your hope in Jesus and trust in Jesus. But that's just becoming a Christian. To live as a Christian, you really need to obey a bunch of things. And let me give you a list. And they gave him a list. And chief on that list was this thing called circumcision. And you might say, now, why is that so important? What it basically was about was this idea that there are certain things that you need to do that, that are going to mark you out as God's people. And this is one of them. Now, in our day and age, circumcision is not really what people look to to say whether or not you're really pleasing to God. But in this day, it was, particularly if you've been from a Jewish cultural background. In our day, we have other things like, well, real Christians don't drink, smoke, or chew or go with girls who do. So make sure that you've got that list covered if you want God to really be pleased with you. I don't care whether or not you've given your life to Jesus. What really matters is that you toe the line after you become a Christian because God's opinion of you is based upon how you live after you're a Christian. That's what these false teachers were saying. Now, Paul hears about this and he really flips out and he says, this is a matter of life and death. If you fall into believing what those false teachers are saying, you have rejected the good news because the idea that you need to keep God pleased with you by what you do is not worth even calling good news. It can't even be called a gospel, which literally means good news. It's not good news at all. If you start down that road, you either are going to have to say, Jesus did enough and I'm going to trust in that, or you're going to say, "Ah, I'm not sure I really want to trust in that. I'm going to trust in what I can do. If you start down that road, Paul says, of thinking that you can earn God's smile by what you do, well, then you're obligated to go completely down that road and watch out. Because once you start down that road, you will realize that you can't do enough for God to really be pleased with you. You can never secure God's smile. You're always going to be wondering, what about the next audition? Right? Those of you that do music know about this. Um, Right? You're only as good as, as your last audition. Right? What can you do that will secure your position? It's really actually like this in so many ways in our world in general now. David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times, columnist, has a book called Bobo's in Paradise, where he, it's a really wonderful book in understanding the culture we live in. And he talks about the profound cultural shift that happened when the, some of the Ivy League schools, Yale and Harvard, kind of led the way in this. Um, they began no longer to accept students based on their parental connections, but they began to accept students based solely on SATs and grade point average. And then all the other colleges started following suit. And, and he said it revolutionized our society to where now we live in what you would call a meritocracy. I mean, at one level, it sounds like a great idea that you know, you're free to make of your life what you can <laughs> until you actually realize that that means you have to be on your A game every moment, every day because you've got nothing else to fall back upon except what you can do and what you bring to the table, right? That's what Paul's saying. That kind of life in your relationship with God is deadly. And not only is it deadly, it leads to all kinds of misery. It makes you bitter, envious, quarreling. 
He talks at one point, he says, I know that you guys have started to, to believe these false ideas because when I look at your lives, you're biting and devouring one another. I can tell that these ideas that you've embraced are not true because of the result it's having in your community. Okay? So now he gets back to the, to the end of the letter and, and you say, okay, so we're saved by grace and not by what we do. Well, does Paul take all of that away with verse 7? Does Paul take all that away with verse 7? It, it kind of seems like he's saying that. I mean, the whole way through this letter, he's been saying, what matters is what God does, not what you do. But here he says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. What is that? Reaping and sowing. That's farm language. Reaping is harvesting. Sowing is planting. So Paul seems to be saying here, at the very end of the letter, what really matters is what you sow, because you will harvest what you sow. But doesn't it seem that the gospel says you harvest what God has sown, right? That you reap, that you get the benefit for what God has done, not what you've done. So what, what gives? Well, I think, you know, I think as you seek for a reconciliation of this sort of idea, you have to say, well, Paul's not a complete idiot. You know, whatever you may think about Paul, you may not like him. You may think he's misogynist. I don't know what you think about Paul, but he's not an idiot. And, and he, he probably doesn't contradict himself within the space of like four chapters. Right? It's not a real long letter, the letter of Galatians. I know we've been going through it for two semesters now, but it's really not that long. So what is he saying? What, what he's saying actually flies right in the face of Western culture. What he's saying is actually a very radical thing. Let me explain it to you. What he's saying is there is an objective order in the physical realm. When you plant corn, you don't reap tomatoes. And there is a parallel to that in the spiritual realm. Now, of course, Western people believe in the objective order in the spirit, in the physical realm, right? You know, I mean, there are cultures in the world where, you know, sometimes, you know, sort of like the forces of nature just seem completely mysterious and almost magical. Modern Western people don't believe that. We believe that you harvest what you plant and the, you know, if you fertilize, it'll be better. And if you don't, it won't, right? So we understand that. We understand that if you plant corn, you get corn, you don't get tomatoes, But what Paul's saying is this is true in the moral realm. And what he's saying, and this is where it flies right in the face of our culture. What he's saying is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter what you believe in your heart or how hard you believe it. There is a connection between the way you live and the experience that you will have. There is a connection. In other words... Many people in our culture basically believe that if you believe something is right, then it's right. Paul says, no, it's not that way. And I would contend that you know that Paul's right and that our culture's not right. In other words, it doesn't matter what you believe in the physical realm. You're subject to gravity, whether you believe in it or not, right? And you know that's why you don't go jumping off buildings, Unless you've got, you know, a bungee cord or something, 
You know, go jump it off buildings because you know that even if you don't believe in gravity, even if you can't explain it, maybe you failed physics. It doesn't matter. It's still true. And you don't jump off buildings. Okay. But what Paul's saying is how you live always shows what you really believe. Uh, One of my favorite examples, do you guys remember the the movie Aaron Brockovich? Do you guys remember that movie? Yeah, good. If I quote a movie that's not too old, but old enough that I won't give it away, if you haven't seen it by now, sorry. But this isn't giving away the movie. But there's one thing, you know, Julia Roberts plays this lady who's um, crusading to fight injustice, and particularly this evil chemical company that has spoiled the drinking water and has led to all kinds of cancer and whatnot in this community. And as she, at one point, she's taken a deposition uh, in, in sort of the conference room with all these other lawyers from the chemical company. And they're talking about how, you know, there's no proof whatsoever that this drinking water is tainted and, you know, there's no problem whatsoever. And um, she just kind of, you know, matter-of-factly tells them that the water that they're about to drink is from the reservoir that they say is just fine. <laughs> and it's like... None of them are going to drink the water. They can talk all day long about how this, is, this water is completely fine. They're not going to drink it. Right? What they really believe, what they really believe is shown by their actions, not by what they say. Right? And it's like that. See, you believe that there is right and wrong, ultimately. We all do. We may differ on what it is, but we all believe that we don't make our own reality. I mean, I mean, people throw out this idea, it sounds, well, sometimes it seems rather self-serving that we can basically define right or wrong, that what's right for you may not be right for me, that what's right for that person may not be right for you, and we can define our own morality. But the fact is, it, well, the, the kind of the pathetically silly version that I always hear is, well, you know, I think that you're really free to do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody, right? You hear this? And you say, well, what if my value is hurting people, you know? Well, of course, it breaks down. It's ridiculous. And, and, and we know that, and it's a good thing, right? But here's what you need to understand. As soon as you say that there are things that people should or should not do, you're admitting that Paul is right and that, that most of our Western liberal culture is not. See, Paul's saying there is an order. What you reap, you will sow. There is a connection. There are some things that are wrong, and the results will be destruction. And there are some things that are, in, that are connected to who you are. Well, Paul's saying, and I love the way that he uses this idea, this organic farm metaphor here, because he's saying it's an organic moral order. In other words, you are sowing something. You are planting something. We all are. If you break God's laws, they break you. God's grace is the reason that you can come into a relationship with him. It's the basis for living in a relationship with him. But the fact is, the one who gives you grace is also the one who made you. And in his law, in his law, he is telling you what you were made for and how you were made to live. And the idea that we're saved by grace and that we live by grace does not negate the fact that the moral law, the way God says you must live, is true to who you are and true to the moral universe that you live in, and you can't escape it. You can't escape it, no matter how hard you believe otherwise. What it means when Paul says here that God is not mocked, God cannot be mocked, what he means is this, 
The universe is linked. What you do is never just about what you do. It's always connected to other things. That's what he's saying here. If, you, if what you're doing is sowing and it's going to reap something in the way you live. If you break God's design, it will affect you. Now, this is not contrary to the idea of grace. It's actually part of God's grace that he gives us a law, that he doesn't just leave us groping in the dark, wondering how are we supposed to live? In other words, God says, if you fail to be generous, it will hurt you because you were made to be generous. If you fail to love other people and to bear one another's burdens, as Robert talked about last week, it will hurt you. God doesn't just give you those kinds of laws and say, bear one another's burdens so that he can be this cosmic killjoy and spoil all your fun. God says that because that's what he made you for. He made us to live in a community that actually cares for one another. And if you reject that and say, no, I'm going to go my own way, it cannot help but eventually come back to bite you. You can't live out of Line with reality forever. That's what he's saying here. God says it's bad for you to not forgive. Right? And this isn't the first time that, this is, that the Bible has said this sort of thing. David, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, really dreadful episode, but at one point, as he, after he sort of, his sanity is restored and he goes to the Lord and, and begs forgiveness, at one point he says, when I was silent, when it was silent, basically my bones, the Hebrew is very graphic, basically started to dissolve. It, has actually, it actually, actually had physical effects on my body, this failure to come in line with reality. Repentance is always about coming back to your senses and coming back to reality. And, uh, and Paul's saying, the way you live matters. But see, here's the thing. Very few of the things that God says are bad for you feel bad for you especially right away. That's the trouble. (laughs) And that's where you get into this whole thing of authority. You can't avoid the authority question. You can't avoid it. Sin generally feels good at first, but eventually enslaves you and ruins you. A couple applications of this. This metaphor he has of reaping and sowing, sowing and reaping, means that you really need, when you're thinking about the way you live your life, you need to have a long-term perspective. Now, this is in a negative thing, but also in a positive way. In other words, in the negative way, just because it isn't hurting you now doesn't mean that it's not eventually going to catch up with you. In other words, if you play loose and fast with commitments and with people's hearts, watch out. You may find that one day you're not able to bond in relationships like God intended you to. Right now, I'm not saying that that to be like gloom and doom scare tactics to say you better quit it or God's going to zap you. That's not the point. The point is the way we live does matter. Right. But but on the positive side, it means this. Look at like he says here where he goes right after this is let's not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. See, Paul's introducing this idea of sowing and reaping because he knows that it's difficult to stay on course working for the good unless you have a long-term perspective because to fight for justice and goodness in this world very, very rarely 
will you see immediate results. If you're actually going to dig in and be about bringing God's kingdom into all areas of life, you have got to be motivated by something bigger than immediate results. You have to be motivated. You have to have a sense that what God says is right, whether it works or not, or whether I see it working now. Because often when you sow, it takes quite a while before you begin to see a little sprout come up. Right. So if you're if you're if when you're thinking about the way you live your life, you're always based upon what seems to work right away. It'd be very difficult for you to avoid some of the things that are most destructive. And it would be very difficult for you to persevere in doing real good. In other words, doing real good usually means that you have to be motivated by something bigger than immediate results. Right. Any of you that have ever learned an instrument or learn to play sports, or learn any skill that requires perseverance, know this. But we we become weary so easily. Second uh, application is this, and this is an interesting thing. When God's Word tells you to do something and it doesn't seem to make sense, what do you do? This is one of those really revealing questions. When God tells you to do something that doesn't seem reasonable, what will you do? What Paul's saying here is, if God says it, it makes sense to who you really are. Whether it seems like that to you or not. And you should trust the one who made you and the one who loves you and the one who redeemed you. He doesn't give you laws to put you back into slavery. He gives you law. He tells you how you're to live so that you could stay free. Because listen, freedom, again, remember, freedom is not found in doing what you want. It's found in being who you were meant to be. If you're out fishing, you know, in a pond, and you see some fish jump up out of the, out of the pond there, up onto the shore, and shout, I'm free! I'm finally free of that water! <laughs> no, it's not a good thing, is it? That's not freedom! They're going to die. <laughs> And so much of the things that we think are freedom are bringing death and destruction into our lives. If you only obey when it seems reasonable to you, what does that reveal about the real authority that you listen to? You know? All right. Well, the second point, boasting in the cross. I love this. See what large letters, verse 11, I use as I write to you with my own hand. What is it that Paul feels compelled to emphasize in this way? What is it that when he gets to this, he says, give me that pen. I got to write this myself and I got to write it big. (coughs) It's it's this. Boasting in the cross. What Jesus did, the cross. Now, again, he flies right in the face of what most people in our culture believe. Most people in our culture believe it doesn't really matter so much what you think. What really matters is the way you live and what you do. But Paul says actually the opposite. What really matters is what Jesus did and whether you believe it, whether you're connected to it. I mean, in verse 14, he says, look, may it never be, this is the old King James, may it never be that I would boast in the King James. God forbid that I boast except in the cross. That's very strong language. But notice what he says here. He says there's one thing necessary, and it's not what Jesus taught, but what he did. 
Paul doesn't say that he boasts in the ethics of Jesus, as wonderful as they are. Paul does not say that he boasts in the teaching of Jesus. Love your neighbor, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, as wonderful as they are. He doesn't say he boasts in the miracles of Jesus. Paul says the thing he boasts in is the cross of Christ. And he takes the pen from his scribe and wants to write it extra big so that we would get that point. Now, again, this is a theme that goes all the way through the Bible. I want you to understand this. This is the thing of central importance in the book of Galatians, but in the whole Bible. It was of central importance to Jesus, and his disciples didn't really get it. You remember this, right? Jesus is is talking to them and teaching them. There's this great story where finally Peter confesses when Jesus says, Who who am I, Peter? Peter finally says, You are are the Christ. And Jesus says, finally. And then he begins to explain to Peter and the rest of the disciples how the Christ must go to Jerusalem to die. And you know what Peter says? He says, no, no. Now, does Jesus say, well, you know, Peter, you've got your opinion. I've got mine. That's fine. (laughs) You know, you believe what you want. I'll believe what I want. He doesn't say that, does he? Do you remember what he says? He says, get behind me, Satan. One of his best friends. Get behind me, Satan. If you're going to try to convince me that the point of this whole thing is not for me to go to the cross and die, then you're opposed to everything that I am and everything I'm about and everything that I'm teaching. You're the personification of Satan himself. Get out of my way. That's Jesus' attitude. In fact, the whole Bible speaks this. Now, Tim Keller has this great thing he he talks about. He says, if you read the Gospels, the four Gospels, and you read them as biographies of Jesus, they're really pretty lousy. They don't do all the things that biographies should do. Gospels are not biographies. Just look at the Gospel of John, for instance. The Gospel of John doesn't really even talk much about his birth, It doesn't say really that much about his life. Half of the book is devoted to the last week of his life. That's not a real great balance if you're writing a biography of somebody. To spend half of your book, half of your paper, just on the last week. And not only that, not only that, but John says that he had all kinds of other things he could have put in there. I don't know if you've ever read this verse. There's this interesting little verse at the end of the book where he says, You know, not all of the books in the world can contain all the things that Jesus did. And you're like, John, you lived, you were with him for three days, or three years, sorry. And then, you know, 40 days after his resurrection, you got to hear him talk about how all the scriptures pointed to him. You got to be with him. And all you wrote were these 21 chapters, 22 chapters, right? What in the world? John. And then you you tease us by saying that you know all kinds of other things that you could have put in there? Didn't we need that? Didn't you need that? John says, no, I gave you what you needed. I showed you the cross, and I told you what it meant. As a matter of fact, the book of John, everything in that book is about the cross. John says, that's what you need. I focused you on what you needed. You didn't just need a bunch of stories 
and a bunch of teachings from Jesus, you needed to know that Jesus came to live and die in the place of sinners. And he really did. And he did it. And he raised from the dead. That's what you need. That's what I've given you. Right? That's why Paul says, this is what matters most. I mean, there's a couple applications. I'll I'll tell you quick. I mean, this is one of the reasons why that whole WWJD thing is so silly. What would Jesus do? Thinking that that's the way you should try to live the Christian life is just imagining what Jesus would do. If that was what the Bible wanted you to, to have as your model, don't you think they would have included a whole lot more examples for us to follow? No. What the biblical ethic is all about is contemplate the cross and what it means in this situation. Because, again, as one of my professors used to always say, the real problem in living the Christian life is not knowing what to do. It really isn't. You know what to do. The real problem is finding the courage to do it. And imagining what Jesus would do doesn't generally bring you any courage. The cross of Christ brings courage. And that's what the Bible directs us to. Um, So here's the question. What does it mean to boast in the cross? Do we boast in the cross or the flesh? And this is the little test that Paul gives us to see if we get it. Do we get it? Do we get what he's been saying in this letter? Do we get what the Bible says is of central importance? And, And here's the test he gives. Those who don't get it will avoid the cross to avoid being persecuted. Now, you go, okay, here's what he's saying, verse 12. They don't get it. The reason I, don't, I know these false teachers don't do it is they avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. They put their hope in the things that they can do to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. What that means is the cross is offensive. To put your hope in the cross is offensive. The cross offends Everybody, because we're so full of pride and we want to be our own saviors. Look at how this works out. See, the cross offends some people because it's the greatest monument to our wickedness. The cross comes in as a reality check and says, do you think that you really are so wonderful? Why is it that for God to call you his child, Jesus had to suffer torturous death? You really think you're, you're so hot? That Jesus had to suffer a torturous death and he pleaded with his father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. And the father said, there is no other way. It's not enough for you to get a little slap on the wrist, Jesus. If I'm going to reconcile the world to myself, you have to die a torturous death. Because sin is so offensive to the goodness and the holiness and the justice of God, that a slap on the wrist wouldn't do it. You needed much more than a slap on the wrist. And Jesus took much more than a slap on the wrist, didn't he? So the, so the cross comes and says, whenever you're tempted to flatter yourself and think that I've, I've, got it, I've got it together, no. Reality, the cross is the ultimate reality check. I mean... See, there's a lot of people that think all good people, all the good people, will come to God eventually. But of course, to do that, to do that is to stumble over the cross. It is to say, really, to reduce the cross, not only just to something that doesn't matter, that wasn't needed, but something that's actually repugnant and offensive. What I mean is this. 
There's, there's this old theologian, he's died now, named Roger Nicole, who used to say, look, if, if, you, if you talk about somebody sort of walking by this house that's on fire, and, 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 he, and he, he sees, you know, he asks, you know, is there anybody still in that house? And they say, no, no, everybody got out safe. He goes, great, let me show you how much I love you. And he dashes into the house and dies. Do you conclude... Look at how he loved us. No. You conclude that he was insane. If the cross was not necessary, then it cannot be an expression of the love of Christ. So that if you say that people can come to God without the death of Christ, without the cross of Christ, just by being good people, being sincere people, really wanting to be reconciled to God... Do you see what that does? It's like saying that what Jesus did was just died on a cross that he didn't really need to die on to show us how much he loved us. But that doesn't show us how much he loves us. It shows us he's insane. Unless the cross was necessary, it can't be an expression of his love. Do you understand? So, you know, the, the Tim Keller puts it this way. Either there's no other way to be saved and Jesus' death makes sense, or there are other ways to be saved, and his death is repugnant. But the one thing you can't say is that Jesus died on the cross, and that's wonderful, but I think all good people everywhere can find God. That's impossible. Keller says, have some guts. Suddenly you start to feel the offense of the cross. If you say you believe in the cross, you can't say that all good people go to heaven when they die. Now that will get you in trouble. Now you begin to understand that it's much easier, it's much easier to soft sell that to get along with people in our culture, right? People hate this because it's so exclusive. Why is it that Christianity alone is right? Because Christianity is not ultimately about what Jesus taught, but about what he did. And if, he didn't, if what he did saved us, well, then it's, he's the only one who did that. And if what he did doesn't save us, well, then the cross makes no sense whatsoever. But see, here's the thing. The view that all good people can, can find God is just as exclusive as the idea that only people who put their hope in Jesus and his death can find God. In the one case, you have everybody, be they weak, be they poor, be they rich, Everybody can find hope through trusting in Jesus. On the other view, you have only the good people, only the people who are able to, to be really wonderful people can be saved. It's just as exclusive. And maybe even worse kind of exclusivity when you realize that you're not a good person. Right? I think that kind of idea that that seems to give hope, that the good people can be saved even if they're not Christians, doesn't really bring any hope once you begin to understand who we are in our heart of hearts. So the cross offends some people because it's this great monument to our wickedness. It offends other people, particularly conservatives, religious conservatives and political conservatives kind of lumped together in here, but it's, it's true. The, the, this group is offended by the cross because it says that basically you're in the same boat as the people who don't even try. What the cross says is that everybody, no matter how good and moral you are or no matter how wicked and, and self-centered you are, everybody can be saved 
and is saved through what Jesus did on the cross. That means that those who've worked hard to be good moral people are no better off than the people who haven't even tried. Because how hard you worked has nothing to do with what God thinks about you. That's offensive. That, that, that means, and, and a lot of people look at that and they say, if that's what Christianity teaches, well then it's a really dangerous idea because how are you going to get people to live right? Surely you have to be able to shame them into living right somehow. What are you going to do? Um, you know, these people basically want, they, they love to put more sort of stigma and shame upon people's lives to get them to live right. And they look down their nose at other people who aren't living as hard and as righteous as they are. But understand, the cross rightly understood is offensive to them as well. Because it says that all of your best efforts don't matter diddly squat. Or as the Bible says it, all of your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That's pretty offensive to tell somebody after they've worked their butt off that it didn't matter. And not only that, it made you more self-righteous and less able to receive the grace of God than these people over here. But that's what Jesus went around saying all the time, you realize. That's why the Pharisees and the religious leaders got so mad at him, because he was constantly going around and saying the kingdom of God is they're closer to the kingdom of God. These people, these harlots, you know, these harlots and these publicans and these tax collectors and these people that you'd think are nowhere near the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is, is really close to them. But you people over here, you're whitewashed tombs. That's strong. The cross offends conservative moral people. Well, how does the cross become not something that offends, but something that is power in your life and something you could even boast in? Not by grudgingly accepting it. And saying, well, okay, I guess I have to accept the cross. The cross will never be power in your life if you basically begrudgingly accept that it's the only way and therefore I guess I have to accept it. What makes the cross power is when you come to see it as beautiful and you boast in it. It's a weird thing. Did you ever stop? I mean, Paul is saying basically, I boast in this instrument of execution. Now we forget about what a cross is because we wear it around our neck. Right. A.W. Tozer, one of the books I read in college that deeply impacted me, um, was a, a book by A.W. Tozer. Uh, and he said, in, the, in, in the, these days, we wear crosses. But in the Roman days, crosses wore men. And somebody that took up their cross was going to die. They weren't coming back. This would be like saying, I boast in the electric chair. It's a weird thing, Right. We hear it so much, it seems like this Christian kind of language and a spiritual thing to say, but it's a weird thing to say. We're to boast in the thing that basically is our reality check and shows us that we're worse than we think we are? Yeah. Because you see, the doorway into coming to understand the grace of God is to be killed by the cross. For the cross to come and say, You have no claim upon God whatsoever. Give it up. (coughs) Relinquish all of your righteousness. Cast yourself completely on what he did. Until you do that, you can go no farther. That's what the cross stands and says. That unless you go under this sword, unless the cross kills you, You can never, see, you can't trust in the cross part way. 
You can't trust in the cross and also want to do your best to cover your bases. The cross says that your bases are no good and are even offensive to God. But the cross also says that what Jesus did was more than you needed. In other words, the cross is your greatest critic, but it's also your hope. And so to boast in the cross means I relinquish all of my hope in anything that I could ever do or ever will do. And I say my only hope is that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners. And because of that, I can get up in the morning and I can live and I can, I can actually live for something other than myself. Because here's this fascinating thing. He talks about here in verse 14 that this, this boasting in the cross is the means through which the world has been crucified to him and he to the world. Now, I know we sang that weird verse in When I Survey that we never usually sing. Um, then all the world, all the globe is dead to me and I to all the world, globe. Right. It's this idea, though, that once you don't just begrudgingly accept the message of the cross, but you actually see the beauty of his blood spreading down like a crimson robe. When you see the beauty of that is when things begin to change. See, if something is controlling you today, your boast is not in the cross. Whatever you're boasting in, you have to serve. If you're boasting in your talent, well, then you've got to keep working on it. If you're boasting in your grades, well, then how can you dare settle for a B? If you're boasting in your relationships, well, then you've got to keep them all juggling up in the air, all those balls, right? Boasting in the cross is the only thing that will actually set you free. Because the cross says you don't need to do a thing. That's why Jesus says, come to me, all you are heavy and weary laden, and I will give you rest. See, we boast or glory in what we find beautiful. And so the question really is, is the cross beautiful to you? I'm not asking, do you think that it's true, that it happened? I'm saying, is it beautiful to you? Seeing the beauty of the cross is what changes you. It's what changed Paul. And I I love the way he ends this way. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. If, If I could give you one piece of advice as this letter closes, it's look for mentors, people who can teach you the word, like he says in verse 6, who have scars. Look for teachers of the world, teachers of the word who have scars because following Jesus has cost them something. When you go out from here and you go looking for somebody, some church somewhere, when you look for a spouse, look for somebody who has scars because of the, the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Those who have known what it is to suffer in following Christ. And if you're one of those people, let me tell you, the world needs you to share that. I think so often about how many, how many people, I feel there are people in this room that have known this, that have tasted this. And my encouragement is, will you use your life, your time, as a kingdom resource to say that God has called me. He's shown me things. He's taught me things. Some of them learned through really difficult seasons where trusting Christ really cost me something. That faith formed, forged in those kind of crucible things 
the rest of your friends need to know that you've been to hell and back and you found God faithful. And my encouragement is, share your story. Share your life. And look for people who will do that. Let's pray together.